0: Did you listen to the Based on a True Story episode from last year about the movie Braveheart? If you did, you'll remember we learned a bit about that movie's writer, Randall Wallace. Well, today we're going to be learning about another movie written by Randall Wallace. No, it's not 2002's We Were Soldiers or 2001's Pearl Harbor, both films Randall Wallace wrote, although we did learn a little bit about the latter. For our Pearl Harbor Day episode with Corey Constable. After he finished up Braveheart and a made for TV movie called Dark Angel, Randall Wallace adapted a book from the 19th century author Alexandre Dumas for the big screen. In addition to writing the screenplay, Randall's directorial debut was for the film named after Dumas's book of the same name, and the movie we'll be looking at today, 1998's The Man in the Iron Mask. I'm Dan LeFebvre, and this is Based on a True Story. Before we dive into the mystery surrounding the man in the Iron Mask, let's set up our two truths and a lie game. If you're new to the show, here's how it works. I'm about to say three facts. Two of them are true, and one of them is a lie. Okay, are you ready? Here they are. Number one, there wasn't really a prisoner known as the, quote, man in the iron mask, end quote. Number two, King Louis XIV did not have a brother named Philippe. Number three, the real man in the iron mask died in 1703, about 40 years after the events in the movie. Got him? Okay. Now... As you're listening to our story today, you'll find the two facts scattered throughout the episode somewhere. That means if you reach the end of the episode and you've only noticed two of the facts, then the third one's a lie. It's a simple process of elimination. And of course, we'll do a recap at the end of the episode to see how well you did. Oh, and while I've got you here, if you've ever wanted even more based on a true story, you can sign up to be an official producer of the show to get access to all of the past and any future episodes that there might be. For example, if you enjoyed the movie Das Boot, maybe you'll enjoy hearing what the guy who wrote the book that the movie is based on, Lothar Gunther Buchheim, what he thought about it. The movie review from him as read by yours truly. Or there's the four extra bonus episodes about the real people mentioned in Kingdom of Heaven. That's over two hours of extra content. Then there's the two bonus episodes supplementing each of the films, The Lost City of Z and Becoming Jane, and many more. Bonus episodes typically come out about once a month, but by becoming a patron, you'll get access to all of the backlog of bonus episodes already released to instantly get many, many more hours of exclusive content. Oh, and producers also get access to episodes early, so if you're listening to this on the day it's released, on Monday... Then producers have already had all weekend to give this episode a listen because they get episodes on Fridays. And to top it all off, when you sign up to become a producer, you get to pick a movie to be on the show. That's right. Your show bumps to the front of the line. I've currently got about 200 shows in the backlog. But as soon as you become a producer, your movie will be featured. To learn more, hop on over to basedonatruestorypodcast.com slash support. Once again, that's based on a true story slash support. And with that, let's compare history with Hollywood's version of The Man in the Iron Mask. The movie opens with a voiceover from Jeremy Irons' version of Aramis. As he explains, some of what we'll see in the movie is legend, but then he goes on to claim one fact. That fact, according to the movie at least, is that rioting citizens of France destroyed the Bastille, and when they did, they found a mysterious entry about a prisoner numbered 64389000, the man in the iron mask. That is true. The Bastille was originally built in the 14th century as a fortress to protect the city of Paris from attacking English during the Hundred Years' War. By the time the 17th century rolled around, the massive fortress had a new purpose—as a prison. With the French aiding the Americans during the Revolutionary War, along with a regressive tax system that punished the poor much more than it did the rich, the French people were fed up with King Louis XVI. On July 14, 1789, citizens stormed the Bastille during the French Revolution in a revolt against the king's abuse of his power. Today, July 14 is known as Bastille Day, or French National Day, for that reason. While swarming the Bastille, the rioters found the rather strange entry referred to by the movie. The prisoner number might not quite roll off the tongue for a song like the prisoner ID for another movie set during the French Revolution, Les Mis, but it was a prisoner ID number nonetheless, 64389000. Or at least, that's how Jeremy Irons in the movie says it, but read as a normal number, that would be 64,389,000. Now, I don't know how they used to number their prisoners in 17th century France, I couldn't find anything about that, but the first question that I had when I saw that number in the movie was, could there have really been over 64 million prisoners? That's a lot. Especially since many historians estimate the French population in 1789 was probably about 28 million. Of course, we don't know when they started and even if they did use a sequential numbering system, but still, that's quite a bit of prisoners if that's what they did. As for the description for this prisoner number, 64389000, the only description the rioters found during their storming of the Bastille was exactly what the movie says, the man in the iron mask. The weather's getting nicer, which means now is the perfect time to plan ahead for summer fun. Personally, I'm hoping to be able to visit my family this summer. And that means booking flights as soon as possible before the prices go up. And now you can help ensure your money is there when you need it with today's sponsor, Earn In. Just download the Earn In app, verify your paycheck and watch your earnings tick up as you work. Access up to $100 a day and up to $750 per pay period so you can start making your summer plans now. It's free and easy to get started. Download Earn In today, spelled E-A-R-N-I-N, in the Google Play or Apple App Store. When you download the Earn In app, type in True Story under podcast when you sign up. It'll really help the show. True Story under podcast. back in the movie. After this brief mention of the man in the iron mask, the text on screen tells us that our story today is going to be set in 1662. So, even though the movie doesn't tell us when the Bastille was stormed, we know from history that was 1789. That's 127 years after the timeline of our story today. So, it's in 1662 when we meet a few main characters, d'Artagnan as played by Gabrielle Byrne, Porthos, as played by Gerard de Pardew, and the priest, Aramis, as played by Jeremy Irons. All of them former musketeers in service to the king. While we're at it, we might as well bring in another former musketeer in today's story, Athos, he's played by John Malkovich. All of these are fictional characters created by the 19th century French author Alexandre Dumas. Perhaps the most popular of his books are what's referred to as the D'Artagnan Romances, Their original titles are in French, of course, but in English we know them as The Three Musketeers, published in 1844, Twenty Years After, published in 1845, and Ten Years Later, published in 1847. That last book, called Ten Years Later, was commonly published in three parts. The last of those three parts was known as The Man in the Iron Mask. That's the book that the movie was based on. So, for the purposes of our comparison today, that would mean even though the four musketeers we see in the movie were fictional characters, it's not like the movie invented them. They're just pulling from Dumas' novel. Oh, and it's worth pointing out that one of the characters was actually based on reality. That would be the hero of the D'Artagnan Romance's series of books, D'Artagnan. Even though he was heavily fictionalized for Dumas' books, He was based on a real person named Charles de Batz de Castelmore d'Artagnan. Charles was, as the movie implies, the captain of the Musketeers of the Guard up until the Musketeers were disbanded in 1642, so that would have been about twenty years before the timeline in the movie. Around that time, Charles stayed on as protector of the man he'd been working with before the disbanding, Cardinal Jules Raymond Mazarin. Even though he's not in the movie at all, Cardinal Mazarin was incredibly powerful as he was the chief minister of France. Basically, he ruled France when King Louis Thirteenth died in 1643 and his heir, King Louis XIV, the man played by Leonardo DiCaprio in the movie, was only five years old at the time. Technically, Queen Anne, who's played by Anne Perlod in the movie, was the ruler up until King Louis XIV came of age. But it was Cardinal Mazarin who basically ruled France almost as if it were a co-monarchy between he and the Queen. That lasted up until 1661, when Cardinal Mazarin passed away. So the movie would be correct in not having him there in 1662, but that would also give a little bit of insight into why in 1662, when the movie's timeline begins, that King Louis XIV would have been coming into power. And there's some rumors that Cardinal Mazarin and Queen Anne had a little thing going on, even to the point of some rumors suggesting that the two had been married in secret. But, of course, when it's a secret kept by those in power, they usually do a pretty good job of keeping those things from the pages of history. Back in the movie... Leonardo DiCaprio's version of King Louis XIV is portrayed as a selfish leader who only seems to care about bedding women and not about the starvation of what's happening in his kingdom—starvation that the Jesuits claim are the result of the king's unjust wars. While the specific events and portrayals in the movie are heavily fictionalized, there's enough truth there to say that this could be plausible. To get a good understanding, we'll have to find out more about Louis Fourteenth before he rose to the throne. Remember when King Louis Thirteenth died in 1643? Well, When he did, he had written in his will to have a regent put in power until his son could come of age. But that didn't happen. Instead, his wife, Queen Anne, had the will annulled so she could become the one and only regent of France. Then she installed Cardinal Mazarin who saw to most of the day-to-day administration while queen anne worked to try to change things around so that when king louis the 14th came of age he would have absolute power in a flourishing kingdom part of that was to help negotiate the truce called the peace of westphalia that put an end to what we now know as the Thirty Years' War, a conflict from 1618 to 1648 between many European powers that, while well, it's hard to verify exact numbers, is regarded by many historians to be one of the bloodiest conflicts in human history, thanks to not only the war itself, but the disease and famine brought about by the war. When that war ended, two more erupted for France. Well, I guess one of them started before the Thirty Years' War ended, but it was brought on as a part of the French involvement in the war. That was the Franco-Spanish War, which went on from 1635 to 1659. The other war erupting for the French was actually a series of civil wars that we know as the Fronde between 1648 and 1653. The Fronde was an attempt by French nobles to overthrow the king, including Gaston, Duke of Orleans who was the elder brother of King Louis XIII. Since the movie doesn't show much of King Louis XIV's early life, we don't see what his life was like there, but if there was a reason for his acting the way we see Leonardo DiCaprio portraying him in the movie being, it's because of the Fronde. You see, during these civil wars, a young Louis, not yet risen to the throne, was broke and starving for much of the time. That was something many historians believe made young Louis harbor a bitterness against the people—one that he would never forgive. Cardinal Mazarin managed to overthrow the rebellion, which did a few things. First, it obviously stopped the riots and civil wars, but the French economy was decimated, leaving an even further gap between the haves and the have-nots. Simultaneously, it cemented the monarchy's authority. Technically, the coronation for King Louis XIV was on June 7, 1654, but even though Cardinal Mazarin wasn't liked by plenty of people at the time for his policies, the new king was afraid to question Mazarin's authority, since he was essentially running much of France. Mazarin passed away in 1661, though, and then King Louis XIV shocked everyone by breaking tradition and replacing Cardinal Mazarin as his chief minister with no one. Louis himself would be the sole ruler, ordering others to only give him counsel if he asked for it. Oh, and the movie never mentions this, but King Louis XIV ended the Franco-Spanish War with an arranged marriage between the king and Maria Theresa of Spain on August 26, 1660. She was the daughter of King Philip IV of Spain. So, a pretty big difference between what the movie shows and history is that by the time 1662 rolled around, King Louis XIV was actually married to Maria Theresa. Oh, and on November 1st, 1661, King Louis XIV and Maria Theresa had their first child together, also named Louis. He'd be the first of five children that the two had, although most of them didn't make it to adulthood. And that's not to mention plenty of other kids that King Louis XIV had outside of his marriage. For example, he had another five kids with one of his mistresses named Louise de la Valliere, We don't really know exactly how many others there were, but we do know there were quite a few other mistresses we know about and surely more that we don't. It seemed that while the movie didn't show Leonardo DiCaprio's version of King Louis XIV having kids during the time of the film, or even being married, the whole idea of his loving to seduce women was true. And since he was the king, I have a feeling his position did much of that seduction for him. or. Perhaps a better way of saying that is, I have a feeling all of those mistresses didn't really have much choice in the matter. Meanwhile, the economic situation in France was fairly accurate in the movie. Well, they don't show much of it, but we get the idea that it's not good. And while it was emphasized for the sake of the movie, it's sort of true. After King Louis took personal and full control of the French government after Mazarin's death in 1661, France had a debt of about 60 million livres. Now, it's virtually impossible to calculate that accurately into U.S. dollars since, well, the U.S. dollar wasn't around in 1661, and it doesn't help that there were multiple livres of varying values—none of them really standardized to today's monetary standards—that were used in France up until the 1700s. But as best as I can tell, 1 livre would be roughly about 10 to 20 in today's U.S. dollars. So that would mean that the French government's debt would have been over a billion dollars in today's money. Nowhere near the $20.5 trillion national debt that the U.S. has today. But still, that's a lot of money. Especially considering back then there wasn't printed paper money like we have today. That didn't come about in France until 1701. Going back to the movie, there's a major plot point that occurs when Leonardo DiCaprio's version of King Louis XIV falls for a woman named Christine Belford. She's played by Judith Godrick. And the only problem with this is that Christine is in love with, and in a relationship with, Raoul, who's played by Peter Sarsgaard. Raoul, on the other hand, is the son of John Malkovich's character, Athos. So according to the movie the king sends off Raoul to the front lines to essentially be killed so he can take Christine. That's all made up. Both Christine and Raoul are fictional characters, not to mention that Athos, as we learned, is also a fictional character. That leads us to, probably, the biggest plot of the entire film. And it makes sense, since it's the title of the film, The Man in the Iron Mask itself. According to the movie, the basic premise of this plot is that the three musketeers, Porthos, Athos, and Aramis, want to swap King Louis XIV with the man in the iron mask, who we find out is the king's younger brother, Philippe. As you can probably guess, since they're twins, Philippe is played by Leonardo DiCaprio. To do this, they make the swap at a ball when everyone is wearing masks. But it's foiled by D'Artagnan, who refused to join the plot due to something that we think is his oath of loyalty at first. But then, after Philippe is released from his Iron Mask to the surprise of D'Artagnan, he ends up revealing that he's actually the father of the two boys. All of that is made up. Or is it? (laughs) As we learned at the beginning of this episode, the prisoner known as the man in the Iron Mask was definitely real. But was he Philippe, the king's younger brother hidden from the world? And were the two twins swapped out, a selfish ruler replaced by his selfless twin brother? Well, that's the fun behind this whole story. You see, we don't really know the full truth, so I can't say for certain how historically accurate the end of the movie is. What we do know from history is that while the storming of the Bastille that the movie mentions in the beginning might have been one of the first indications of the prisoner to the public, it's not the first time he was mentioned. This is an excerpt, translated into English, of course, from the diary of a French lieutenant stationed at the Bastille named Etienne de Junca. Thursday, September 18, 1698, at three o'clock in the afternoon, M. de Saint-Mars, governor of the Chateau of the Bastille, made his first appearance, coming from his governorship of the Isles of Saint-Marguerite-Unura, bringing with him in his conveyance a prisoner he had formerly at Pignerol whom he caused to always be masked, whose name is not mentioned. Directly, he got out of the carriage, he put him in the first room of the Bézinier tower, waiting till night for me to take him at nine o'clock and put him with M. de Rosignage, one of the sergeants brought by the governor, alone in the third room of the Bézinier tower, which I had had furnished with all necessaries some days before his arrival Having received orders to that effect from M. de St. Mars, the witch prisoner will be looked after and waited on by M. de Rosarge and maintained by the governor. Now, I'll admit my pronunciations there aren't great. I, I don't speak French, so if you if you do and you would like to help me with those, by all means, feel free to let me know. But for our purposes today, we can glean a few things from this. First, the man in the iron mask came to the Bastille from Pignorol. Do you remember in the movie when we see the exterior of the prison that Leonardo DiCaprio's version of the prisoner is kept in? It's basically a fortress surrounded by water on all sides. Well, neither Pignerol or the Bastille looks like that. Pignerol is in the modern-day city of Turin, Italy. However, we know this was a prison for the French, because in 1661, right after Cardinal Mazarin died, King Louis XIV sent Nicolas Fouquet there to be imprisoned. He's not in the movie at all, and we haven't talked about him, but Nicolas Fouquet was uh, the superintendent of finances in France up until when he was imprisoned by the king in 1661. He stayed in prison at Pignerol until his death in 1680. Although, if I were to speculate, the prison that we see in the movie probably looks a little bit more like the Bastille, which makes sense because there's even a couple of times when the film mentions the Bastille, but that's located in Paris, not surrounded by water on all sides. As we learned from Lieutenant Juncker's diary, the man in the iron mask didn't arrive at the Bastille until 1698. Oh, and by the way, King Louis XIV died in 1715, so I suppose some could say that if Louis was switched out for his hidden younger brother, Philippe, maybe that could be true. Except Philippe wasn't hidden. He was a real person, born on September twenty-first, 1640 as the younger brother of King Louis XIV. Do you remember Gaston, the Duke of Orleans? I mentioned him briefly earlier in the episode as King Louis XIII's brother and the one who was the leader of the Fronde rebellions. Well, Gaston was killed in 1660 as a part of the rebellion and when he died, Philippe gained his title as Duke of Orleans. So he wasn't locked away in some prison cell somewhere. In fact, with reports of Philippe's effeminacy and homosexuality, many historians believe in the context of the day that most nobles in France didn't see him as a serious threat to King Louis XIV's hold on the throne. For example, Philippe often wore female clothing to balls, and there were some rumors that his first sexual encounter with another man was with Philippe Jules Mancini, none other than the nephew of Cardinal Mazarin. Lt. De Junca would mention the mysterious prisoner again in his diary. With this new entry, we gather some new information. On the same day, November nineteenth, seventeen 1703, the unknown prisoner, always masked with a mask of black velvet, whom M. de Saint-Mars, the governor, brought with him on coming from the Isle de Saint-Marguerite, whom he had kept for a long time, the which happening to be a little ill, yesterday on coming from Mass. He died today, about ten o'clock at night, without having had a serious illness. It could not have been slighter. M. Garot, our chaplain, confessed him yesterday, is surprised at his death. He did not receive the sacrament, and our chaplain exhorted him a moment before he died. And this unknown prisoner, kept here for so long, was buried on Tuesday at four o'clock p.m., November 20th, in the graveyard of St. Paul, our parish. On the register of burial, he was given a name, also unknown. M. de Rosarge, major, and aerial surgeon, signed the register. Did you catch what that new piece of information was? Well, there's the date that he died, of course, November 19th, 1703. But I'm referring to the line that this unknown prisoner was always masked with a mask of black velvet not iron. Of course, as you remember from the beginning of this episode, as the story goes, when they stormed the Bastille, they uncovered a prisoner listing him as the man in the iron mask. Before Alexander Dumas' novel, the French writer and historian Voltaire was the one to perpetuate the idea that it was an iron mask when he wrote in 1751 that the mask had a, quote, movable, hinged, lower jaw held in place by springs that made it possible to eat wearing it, end quote. That would seem to go against Lieutenant Dejunka's diary, which, whenever historians tried to match things up to other entries, always proved to be correct with, well, the things that we could prove. So now you're starting to get a sense for how the deeper you dig into this story, the more questions you end up having rather than answers. For example, if it were just a velvet mask, why wouldn't the prisoner lift it from his face? Well, some reports suggest that there were a pair of soldiers stationed by the prisoner's side at all times, ready to shoot him if he were to pull off the mask. Oh, and in the margins of that diary entry, Lieutenant Dijunka tacked on this bit of information. I have since learned that they called him M. de Marchel on the register, and that 40 livres was the cost of his funeral. M. de Marchel. That's M. A. R. C-H-I-E-L. That's what was on his death certificate. But was that his real name? Maybe. Maybe not. To add yet another layer of mystery, historians point to this excerpt from St. Paul's Church, which reads, On the 19th, Marchioli, aged 45 or thereabouts, died in the Bastille, whose body was buried in the churchyard of St. Paul, his parish, the 20th of the present month, in the presence of M. Rosarge, Major of the Bastille, and of M. Rigley, Surgeon Major of the Bastille, who signed." So now we have another name, Marchioli. That's M-A-R-C-H-I-O-L-Y. And you'll notice that those dates match up with Dijunka's diary. Some historians suggest that perhaps this was a misspelling of the name Mattioli, M-A-T-T-I-O-L-I, That would be a reference to Ercole Antonio Mattioli, who was a minister to Duke Charles IV of Mantua, and someone who we know was kidnapped and imprisoned by King Louis XIV in 1679. That was done for some double-crossing that the king wasn't too happy about. Where was he sent to prison? You guessed it. Pignerol. So that line up with Lieutenant De Junca's mention in 1698 that the man formerly imprisoned at Pignerol moved to the Bastille. But King Louis XIV was known to have imprisoned a lot of people during his reign for a wide variety of reasons, pretty much on a whim. So even if the timing lines up for Mattioli, that's hardly proof. Especially since Mattioli died in 1694, or at least that's the date that we have of his death. And of course, we know about the theories that the prisoner was the twin brother of the king, but of course we already know that's not likely true as Philippe wasn't hidden from the world. Another possible suspect as to the identity of the mysterious man in the iron mask was a man named Eustache Dogger. Again, we don't really know if that was his real name. Some suggest that perhaps he was an assassin. Still others think perhaps Dogger was involved in some political scandal that King Louis XIV wanted to have extinguished. Many historians say that was almost certainly a false name. In a letter written from the Secretary of State to the Governor of the Bastille, St. Mars, the order came that St. Mars must be the one to feed Dogger. In addition to that, quote, You must threaten him with death if he speaks one word except about his actual needs. He is only a valet and does not need much furniture, End quote. A valet? but whose valet was he? That's the tricky part. Maybe he was Mattioli's valet, arrested near Dunkirk as some reports indicate the location of the mysterious prisoner's arrest being. Still other theories suggest he was the valet for Nicolas faqua If you remember, he was the superintendent of finances who was imprisoned by the king in 1661. Just a couple of years ago, in 2016, historian and professor at the University of California, Santa Barbara, Paul Sanino, released his book in which he claims to have solved the mystery. That book, called The Search for the Man in the Iron Mask, a Historical Detective Story, is a great read, and I'd recommend picking it up if you want to dive into way more detail than we could ever hope to hear. So, who does he believe Eustache Dogger was the valet for? None other than Cardinal Mazarin himself. Summing it all up in an interview for Live Science, Sonino explained, quote, What I was able to determine was that Mazarin had ripped off some of his huge fortune from the previous King and Queen of England. Dogger must have blabbed at the wrong time. He was informed, when arrested, that if he revealed his identity to anyone, he would immediately be killed, end quote. Oh. And during the final sequence of the movie, we see the grave of D'Artagnan, who so bravely died at the very end of the film. If you remember, the character of D'Artagnan was the only one of the four main musketeers in the film to not be completely fictional. He was based on Charles de Bat's de Castlemore D'Artagnan. Well, the real D'Artagnan died on June 25, 1673, well over a decade after the timeline of the movie. This episode of Based on a True Story was written and produced by me, Dan LeFebvre. To learn more about The Man in the Iron Mask, I'd recommend starting with a few different books. First, there's the classic novel by Alexandre Dumas. As we learned, there's a lot of it that's heavily fictionalized, but it's still a classic and it's still worth reading even if it's just for the entertainment factor. I'd also recommend Paul Cennino's book called The Search for the Man in the Iron Mask—A Historical Detective Story. I'll add links to that book and plenty more resources to begin your deep dive into the mystery surrounding The Man in the Iron Mask over at basedonatruestorypodcast.com. Before we get to the answer to the Two Truths and a Lie game, here's another 5-star review. This one is from Infinite Rider over on Apple Podcasts and it says, quote, This podcast is great. It's obvious that Dan really does his homework. I think it's great that he has all the links to his resources on his website along with a transcript of the podcast in case you want to dig into the information yourself. The very first podcast I listened to, I learned tons of new information about a movie that I loved and I didn't have to call the internet myself to find it. In fact, I didn't know there was anything to find since this movie, A Few Good Men, isn't widely publicized as being based on a true story. Great work. Looking forward to listening to more." Thanks so much, Infinite Rider. I'm so glad you enjoyed the A Few Good Men story. As you said, it's not widely publicized as being based on a true story. And to be honest, listening to the episode, we don't really know a lot of the true story itself. After all, being on a military base, there's a lot of stuff that's on a need-to-know basis. and the public doesn't need to know. Even though most of the movies I cover here on the show are ones that market themselves as being based on a true story in some form or fashion, I do like to throw in some of those that don't really market themselves that way, but there's still a bit of truth in there. A A Few Good Men being a great example of that or The Hunt for Red October being another one. But it sounds like you've learned a few new things, so I'm glad you enjoyed it. Thanks so much and thanks for the review, Infinite Rider. Okay, now it's time for the answer to our two truths in a lie game from the beginning of the episode. As a refresher, here are the two truths and one lie. Number 1. There wasn't really a prisoner known as the Man in the Iron Mask. Number 2. King Louis XIV did not have a brother named Philippe. Number 3. The real Man in the Iron Mask died in 1703, about 40 years after the events in the movie. Did you find out which one is a lie? The lie is… Number 1. Most historians agree that there was a man in the iron mask, even though technically they also agree that he most likely wore a black velvet mask instead of an iron one. What do you think the answer is to the mysterious man in the iron mask? Do you really think it was a valet, maybe someone who was privy to confidential conversations who just happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time? Or do you think it was someone more sinister? Either way, consider this your official invitation to join the Base on a True Story Facebook group and share your thoughts with the community. You can also find me on Twitter where I'm at DanLeFeb, D-A-N-L-E-F-E-B, or you can unlock access to special bonus episodes by supporting the show over at baseonatruestorypodcast.com slash support. And of course, you can find the entire archive of free episodes right now over at the show's home on the web, baseonatruestorypodcast.com. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll chat with you again really soon.